My name is Rob. For those of you who don't know, I'm Rob Goff. I'm the regional missionary for a ministry called Fathers in the Field. Fathers in the Field is a ministry that gives tools to churches to reach into the lives of fatherless boys, to put men, godly men, into their lives. Um, for me, this is one that's near and dear to my heart because there's 27 and a half million fatherless children in this country. Um, statistically, one out of every four children grows up without their biological father in the home. Um, and two out of every four children grow up with nobody, no man in the home. So, works out. Um, so our ministry is really unique. And so the joke always is everywhere I go, I'm a one-trick pony. Uh, I preach about fatherlessness, and I'm really good at it because I do it, and I've done it for five years, and I preach about 13 sermons a year, maybe a little more, and they're always on fatherlessness. And so it was really funny when David asked me if I would preach, and I said, yeah, that'd be great. I won't have to preach about fatherlessness. And so he gave me this section of Luke, and I was looking at it, and I thought, great. And then we were talking last week, and he's like, I didn't get as far as I thought I'd like to, so I'd like to have you, you know, finish up the part that I was going to do. And guess what I'm preaching about today? And I'm like, this is really funny. God has a good sense of humor. So hopefully you do too. The nice thing for, for you today will be, uh, this will be a short sermon. <laughs> uh, hopefully a really convicting sermon. Hopefully it, it's something that you have something that you can, you can leave with. So for me, all good stories have a beginning. So I don't know if, if there's lots of people out here who like to read or that you like to watch movies or those kinds of things, but the key to any really good story is not just knowing who the characters are and not just knowing what's going to happen, but it's knowing how those people ended up there to begin with. I'm a prequel guy. I really like prequels. So like, for example, the Harry Potter series I thought was really neat. Then they came out with a prequel, and I was like, that's even neater. Like, now I get to go back in time and see kind of things that happen. So today, before we get into our story in Luke, we are going to go back in time to a prequel so that we can set the stage, so that we can understand exactly what's going on, so that when we have our encounter with Jesus today, we'll understand why the encounter that we have with Jesus is the encounter we have with Jesus, because it's kind of important beginning before anything existed, only God existed. That to me is the most amazing thing. So in Genesis, when God creates, comes out of nothing. God just creates everything from nothing, like literally nothing. There was just, just nothing. And the first 10 chapters of Genesis are really neat because they're really condensed. They're not meant to be a whole lot of information. They're not meant to be chronological day by day, the occurrences of what's going on. It's chronological truth that's meant to be condensed in the story to give you preface so that when you hit Abraham, you know what's going on. That's really amazing to me, right? So one of the things that we notice is that when God creates humanity, the triune God says to each other, let's create man in our image. And then they handcraft Adam out of dust, and he, it makes him, and then God breathes his breath into him, and it makes us different than the animals. That, so humanity, to be human, you have to have not only a physical body but a soul. The two need each other. That's what it means to be human. It, it, it's part of the imago Dei, part of being in the image of God. 
God loved us so much that he handcrafted man, and then when Adam figured out that there was no helpmate for him, which again, condensed amount of time in Genesis, so we don't know. It could have been a day, a week, a year, 10 years. I figure it was long enough for the elephants to give birth twice, so five years, maybe longer. And Adam's looking around and going, okay, everybody is having little people except me. There is only me. I need something more. So God lovingly gives Adam Eve. And then they, again, spend some unknown amount of time in the garden. And at some point in that, the deceiver comes and derails Adam and Eve by somehow convincing them that maybe God is holding out. Maybe there's a step they missed. And even in that, we don't know how long it was between the time the lie was spoken to Eve and the time that Eve sinned. We don't know how long that lie gestated in her head. We just know that eventually she eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and experiences for the first time in her life what it means to walk away from God, to disobey. And she shares it with Adam, and Adam experiences the same thing. He experiences the knowledge of good and evil. And then God lovingly comes to them and says, hey, guys, what happened? And they explain what happened. And because God loved them so much, he took them out of the garden. I want you to see that as a loving act. God realized, okay, you've now sinned, right? You've let death into the world. And if you stay in the garden, then you'll eat of the tree of life. And if you eat of the tree of life, you will stay in this death state forever. And so God lovingly removes them from the garden. He lovingly takes them out and says, life is just going to get tough now. That's part of what the curse is. So when Adam and Eve sinned, the thing that entered into the world, Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. That means well, that's what you earn. When you sin, you earn death. So Adam and Eve brought death into the world, and as their offspring, when we sin, we bring death. It's the very only, it's literally the only thing each and every person on the planet is guaranteed. We are all going to die. It's a really amazing thing to think about. I always try to think about how the loving creator thought about that, because I imagine it broke God's heart. Here, this, this creature, he created humanity uniquely, endowed humanity uniquely in order to do what? To be in this triune love relationship. Eternally, the father loves the son, and the son loves the spirit. They love each other eternally. God is in no need of anyone. But love is always got to be an active, conscious, volitional choice. So when he creates humanity, he creates us to be rational, volitional, because he wants us to choose to love him so that we might eternally be in this love relationship with God. And then when we sinned, we jettisoned ourselves from that. So humanity goes through sin and death, and we, we come up to our story today where God himself, the second person of the Trinity, clothes himself with humanity. Uh, St. Gregory the Great in the fourth century put it this way. 
in the incarnation, God puts on all that it means to be human, that he might heal all that it means to be human. There's a really deep theological thing going on, but the God of the universe loved us so much that rather than leave us in death and destruction and just letting us go, he became a human being, completely human, that he might heal the death in us, that we might have life in him, that we might be restored to the the state that Adam and Eve were in, in which we can learn to be obedient and as we follow God, that we might be transformed into that image of Christ. That's what's going on. So when we're talking about today, we're going to talk about in our encounter with Christ, encountering the compassion of Jesus. And I want you to see that when he was born of the virgin at the very beginning of Luke, that we started, when we started the very beginning of Luke, we talked about that. That is the first instance of God having compassion on us as human beings. Because to have compassion is to see someone in their plight and to be so moved emotionally that you cannot help but enter into their life to help fix, repair, or heal whatever has been broken. And I think that's true for each of us. We should be able to look at our own lives and see the things where people have hurt us, where we've done things that are wrong and we've hurt other people, and see this thing that's going on in us that creates death so that daily we live in this this essence of death. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And while you're turning there, it's going to be verse 11. David, last week we talked about Christ, right? Jesus, they implored him, the the Jews implored Jesus to come to a centurion's house, the enemy of Israel, to their enemies, right? To to come in and heal the centurion's servant. And do you guys remember what happened last week? The centurion sends another servant and he says, tell Jesus he doesn't, I'm not worthy to have him even come to his house. All Jesus has to do is speak a word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, this is an amazing amount of faith, right? So does he go to the guy's house? No, he just says, okay, he's healed. And then the guy's healed. And then we turn right around, right after he does this. So Jesus is invited to come and heal somebody. Before he even gets there, he never sees the guy, he never touches the guy, he never speaks to the guy. He speaks merely a word of healing and the man is healed. And then we end up here. And it came about soon, uh, oh boy, that's the wrong version to be reading out of today. This one has multiple versions in it. Sometimes it throws me off. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd From the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were filled with awe and praised God. 
A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. What are the things that I think you should know in this passage that are super, super important? The first thing is, in this time frame, this woman's sole source of income is this boy. Women were not necessarily third-class citizens, but they weren't first-class citizens. <laughs> so in order for a woman to get money, she needed a husband who would work, who would get money for her, who would provide for her, who would protect her. When her husband died, this woman has experienced death. When her husband died, this young man, because in the Greek, he's not a boy, he's a young man. He's probably in his late teens, early 20s. This young man then would go and work and provide and care for his mother. With him gone, she is reliant on the community. Now, God did a lot of really amazing things in the Old Testament, and one of them was he commanded his people to be the champions of the fatherless and the widow. So he actually commanded his people to take care of this son who is fatherless and this woman who is a widow until such time as the boy could take care of her himself. We also know that by reading through the Bible that two of the, two of the exiles that happened to Israel happened because they were not doing that. They were actually taking advantage of the fatherless and the widow to their own ends. The exact opposite of what God has asked them to do. God has asked them to go and to care for those who cannot care for themselves and to protect those who are the most vulnerable. In our society, believe it or not, single moms, fatherless kids, are the most vulnerable people in our society still. The, the things that we don't talk about as often as we probably ought to. Uh, for fatherless kids, they're more likely to drop out of school, to do drugs, to commit suicide. They're, they make up 90 to 95% of the people in our jails. Okay? They do. And they're also the highest trafficked for sex trafficking in the U.S. And by the way, we have a huge sex trafficking problem in this country. We, a huge problem that we won't talk about. We, we, I guess we, if we pretend if we don't talk about it, it doesn't happen. But we have a huge problem. So this woman has a serious need, doesn't she? Her, her, her son, the one who's now going to provide and protect and care for her, is gone. And she is back to being reliant on a community that may or may not take care of her. She may struggle. She may starve to death. She may barely ink by. But she has to do it on the goodwill of those in her community. So Jesus comes on the scene. He's not been called. He's not been asked for. Nobody sent for him. He's doing what? All through Luke, you see this. Jesus is doing the will of the Father. He's doing the work of the Father. So as we read through the whole Old Testament, we realize something about God, right? God loves you. He does. Each and every person in this room, God loves you. Each and every person in this room, because you're a Mago Dei, you're made in the image of God, you are the most precious thing on the planet. There is nothing, nothing on the planet more valuable than human life. I mean, nothing. So much so that the God of the universe became one of us that he might heal our death problem and our sin problem, that he might transform and change us. 
because nothing is more important than human life. So Jesus shows up on the scene. Nobody's called for him. Nobody's asked him. And he sees this funeral procession, procession going by. They're, they've got him on a stretcher. By the time in this culture you would die, and then within about 24 to 48 hours, they'd have to do something with you because you would start to smell. So they would wrap you in herbs and in balms, and they would wrap you up. And so this person is not someone who just recently died. It's not like this, the, the previous story, right? The previous story was the centurion saying, my servant is on the verge of death. Please come heal him before he dies. This person is not the young girl who is laying in bed dead. This is a young man who's dead, who's wrapped up, and is going. They're, they're taking him to the tombs as they speak. The guy is gone. In the Greek, the word for he, he was dead is in the perfect tense, and I always love this when they use it because the perfect tense means there's a point in time in which it occurred, and then it's a continuing situation. So there's a point in time it happens, and it, so he's not just dead, he died, and he's continuing to be dead. That's actually how it reads. I laughed. See, thank you. At least somebody laughed. I laughed. I read that. I was like, ah, that's kind of funny. It's like, like uh, in Genesis when they say you, you, you'll die by death, and it's like, is there some other way to do that? <laughs> in Hebrew, it's funny because it's like a reiteration of it to, to enforce the point that death is kind of final. But, yeah, you can die into death. Like, well, okay. Died to straw. Boop. So Jesus encounters this guy who's dead, completely and utterly dead. There's no question that he's dead. What does this encounter look like? Well, let's look at it first from the position of the mother. Jesus comes up, he touches, he touches the, the, the pyre, he tells her first to stop crying, right? She's weeping. She's lost her only child. I, I don't know how many of you here have ever lost a child, whether it was through um, uh, when, you, when you were pregnant and you miscarried or stillborn children or children that are up, but no one should experience the loss of a child as a parent, that it, it's beyond heart-wrenching and beyond what you can explain to someone else. When you look at young people as a youth pastor, I, I have done four or five funerals for teenagers. And it's heart-wrenching because you look, these aren't people that are old and gray-haired that you expect to die. They're young people who have been taken way too young. And the emotions, so try to understand the emotions of a mother who has lost her husband and now she has lost her only child. Just, just, just imagine that. And Jesus sees this heartbreak, and what does he do? He could just walk by, right? He doesn't have to stop. Jesus doesn't have to stop and do anything. Nobody's asked him to do anything. But what does he do? He has compassion on her, and that's what it says. It means his heart was so moved with her pain that he couldn't walk past. He couldn't do nothing. He had to do something. So he reaches out and he touches, he touches the stretcher. He tells her to stop crying. He touches the stretcher. And the reaction of the people is to stop. I'm not sure exactly what's going on in that, but I have to assume that it's the power of God interacting <laughs> with these people that causes them to stop. Literally, he touches the, 
the, the, the beer, the, the, the stretcher, and they stop. And this woman has assumably stopped crying, and they're all trying to figure out what's going to go on. And Jesus then gives her back her son. He says to the, man, to the young man, right, um, he says, young man, I tell you to get up. So he commands him to get up. So what does the kid do? He sits up, all covered in bandages, probably can't see anything, and he starts talking. Because speech often is the proof of life, right? This guy, you can't claim that he wasn't dead because he's been dead long enough they've wrapped him and they're carrying him off to the grave. And his reaction is to speak, to speak forth, right? So he gives, then it says that he gives him back to his mother. Imagine the heart of a mother who thinks you've lost everything. And then you've been returned the most precious gift you could possibly have, your only son. Because of the compassion of God. Because that's how much God loves us. And you think about a young man, a young man whose life was cut short. So when he encounters Christ, what compassion does he get? He gets a returned life, a renewed life. A young man who, assumably in his prime, or even prior to his prime, who had so much to look forward to, so much life ahead, has been given back life, has been given back the opportunities to fall in love, to have children, to work hard, to experience life, to know God. What an amazing testimony for him, don't you think? Like, people are like, so what's your story? Well, I was dead. Just, you know, headed off to the, uh, to the tombs. And uh, Jesus came and told me to get up. And so I did. And look at me here. I can't, I can't imagine that he isn't one of the loudest voices telling people about Jesus. Right? You have to, you, I, I was dead. Like, this is why when we get to Lazarus, it's so amazing. Because Lazarus isn't just dead on the way. He'd been dead for a while. Right? So, Jesus' compassion extends to the woman. It extends to the young man. And I charge that the compassion of Christ extends to us. Because in a lot of ways, we are no different than the young man on the stretcher. Believe it or not, every time we're disobedient, which is what sin is, by the way, every time we do something that we know is willfully wrong, we're pretending like we're still dead. So if you're here this morning and you've met, never met Christ, you've never confessed your sins to Christ and asked God to heal you and, and started the journey to becoming more like Christ, then you're like that young man. You're dead. You're laying there dead, headed the wrong direction. And each of us at some point in our lives was there. And it was the compassion of Christ that reached into our lives and touched us and stopped the motion of where we were headed. Because I think in the story, that's what's going on. The man is dead, and he is headed towards the place where all the dead go and don't come back. So when he touches the, the, the stretcher and he stops those men, he is actually arresting the progress of death. He's stopping its direction. 
And in each of our lives, there have been times when God has reached into our lives and stopped the direction that we were going and said, I have something better for you. And then he says to us, now get up. We have another direction to go. Let me restore you back where you belong. And that's the beauty of Christ in the incarnation. Is not only does he save us from the biggest problem we have, which is death, which again is guaranteed to us all, but he gives us new life. The, the scripture is very clear that when you die to Christ, when you're the old you, the sinful you, who the willfully sinful you dies and is resurrected with Christ, that you have new life in Christ because Christ is alive even today. Amen? It's life-changing for us. And part of that encounter with Christ, and when we encounter the compassion of Christ, it's much like encountering the love of Christ. Those who have been loved much, love much. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. And those who have experienced great compassion, give great compassion. I, char- I charge that every single day we should be emoting large amounts of compassion that maybe we're not doing. So I want to give you something to go home with. So if you're here today and you've never experienced the compassion of Christ, you, you've never gotten to that point where you say, I need to be saved, I need a different life, I need to be changed, then I would encourage you to come up and talk to Pastor David or to Jim or to someone else here and say, what does it take for me to change and no longer live in death but to live in, in life through Christ? And if you're sitting here today and you are a believer and you would say, no, I've, I know Christ. And I know my sins are forgiven. And I know that this has been who I am and changed. I would charge that we need to each, every minute of every day, look at the compassion we do or do not give. That's why it's really funny. I, I love how God orchestrates these things together. But like adoption. Why are Megan and Zach adopting? Because of compassion. Um, Amanda and I, when we did youth ministry, we, we had a sister church in Costa Rica. And one of the projects they do is called the Abraham Project. And the Abraham Project takes street, street women, off, they take prostitutes off the street. They teach them viable skills. They bring their children in. They teach them to parent and to care for their kids. They help them find actual jobs outside of prostitution, places to live that are safe, and they're trying to end prostitution in Costa Rica. And they've been doing that for, oh, we've been here 12 years, at least 20 years. And they're not the only ministry that does that. There's not enough ministries that do it. When we talk about half a million orphaned children just in Colombia, and by the way, Colombia is really tiny. And then we walk over the death and destruction in our own streets every single day. It's one reason I did Fathers in the Field is because I recognize the hurt that happens to fatherless children. When their father isn't involved in their life, when their father, when no man steps up into their life and says, I love you, I will fight for you, I will lead you, I will guide you, I will protect you. Then we can't figure out why they end up in jail or they end up dead. Compassion is a very easy thing to 
Um, compassion is one of those things. Sorry, that was irritating. Compassion is, is one of those things that it just means that your inner emotion has been moved to the plight of another person. For some of us, it, it's going to be different for every person. I, I, I recognize that. For some of us, like me, uh, Fathers in the Field was great. I loved stepping into the lives of fatherless kids. I love watching churches like this church. The reason that we started coming to this church four and a half years ago was because this church is all about compassion. Whether it's the food pantry, which, um, which Jim passionately pours into because that's where he sees compassion needed and he pours in compassionately or it's guys like Russ who's a mentor father or Bob who's a mentor father we have all these guys who pour into things that they love we have families that pour into adopted kids but compassion can be the very easiest thing so while I list a few ways that you can be compassionate because my prayers are never very long the band can probably come up because it really won't be very I want to give you some tangible ways in which you can show compassion in imitation of Christ, who loved you so much that not only did he become incarnate on the earth and suffer all the things that we suffer, but he suffered on a cross and died for you and for me because he loved us, because he was so moved by our plight, not because he had to because he was so moved by our plight. So what are some ways that we can show compassion because we've experienced an encounter with Christ? If you've encountered the living Christ and you feel that you've been forgiven and that he has loved you so much he reached into your life, then you should take the ways he's reached into your life and reach into the lives of other people. So maybe it's feeding the homeless guy on the side of the road or giving him a new coat. Maybe it's that family that lives next door to you in the apartment complex that just drive you absolutely nuts, but you know that they're starving to death or that they're struggling, and what they need is someone to love them enough to enter their life and say, I have nothing to give you except my life. Let me tell you about this Jesus that I know because it changed who I am. Maybe it's the kid at school who gets beat up every day or picked on every day, who just needs someone to boldly stand up and say, that's enough, I'm not letting it happen anymore. One of the very first things that when, when we told my son when I was raising Keelan, we told him that it's okay to fight if someone else starts it, but if you see somebody getting picked on, go to town. So I got a lot of calls from the school telling me that my son got in a fight because some other kid was getting picked on. And I'd hug him and I'd tell him I was proud of him. If you see someone in plight, no matter what that plight is, and you choose not to do anything, if you lack empathy and you do nothing, you also lack compassion. Compassion is very simple. From maybe it's the kid at school that just needs a, a friend to sit with them at lunch or need to be invited to a group event. Maybe it's the coworker that drives you crazy that you know they're hurting in life and they just need to know that somebody out there cares enough to listen to them. And I'm the guy that, that, that believes you should always tell them why you're doing it. You should say, you know what? I don't have all the answers, but I have Jesus. And Jesus has changed my life so much that I would love to share that with you. But right now what I want to do is Listen to what's wrong with you so that I can do whatever I can to try to help you because I love you. 
saying it is not enough. It always has to be backed with action. And that's the beauty of it. Do, do we know that Jesus in this encounter loves this woman and loves her son? We know that. Why? Because he stopped and healed the kid and gave him back to his mother. That level of compassion is what we should be doing each day. So I'm going to pray while, while I'll pray, and then they'll play. And then during the song, if you'd like to get the elements for communion, then Pastor David will lead us in communion. Let's pray. God, Father, we just pray that you would continue to enlighten our hearts. Give us the compassion that you have, that when other people encounter us and see us, they would see you, that they would know how much they're loved by you, by the way we love them. Pray that you would continually give us a compassionate heart. Pray that you'd bless over and watch over each of us as we go. In Jesus' name.